then make my boy realize that at the side of the everlasting why, there is a yes and a yes and a yes. Has your son no particular hobby? I generally forget my worries at the piano, and collecting stamps did no end of good for my brother Freddie. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowley. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 154 today and we are back to Erica's choice. What are we talking about today? Something I've waited quite a while to get to, and that is A Room with a View from 1985, directed by James Ivory and adapted by Ruth Prower Javala from E.M. Forrester's 1908 novel of the same name. It stars Helena Bonham Carter, Maggie Smith, Julian Sands, Denham Elliott, Daniel Day-Lewis, Simon Callow, and Judy Dench. Something quite extraordinary occurs in the life of young Lucy Honeychurch when she meets free-thinking George Emerson in Florence. Will she give in to romance or return to her respectable humdrum life? Well, I am so glad that we are finally doing this one, and I am most interested to hear why this had such an impact on you. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this is among your most formative cinematic experiences. You can probably quote this one the same way some people do The Big Lebowski or Monty Python and The Holy Grail, right? Is this an all-time top 10 desert island choice for you? 100% since the day that I saw it in 1985. And I have to say, truly, I am not exaggerating. It is a pleasure to return to this movie. I never get tired of it. It always delights me. And it gives me, I think truly, that same feeling of warmth and giddiness that I felt the first time I saw it, which was at home on VHS. As she would often do, my mom rented something special when I had a sick day, or a vacation day, or just when she felt like it, and this was a sick day choice, and we watched it together. You can imagine the hoots and laughter, especially when we went to come and have a bathe. And it truly formed my sensibility for a very long time. And I mean, those things that I gravitated to forever after, anglophilia, being drawn towards romanticism on the positive side, as opposed to the tubercular romanticism, <laughs> for example. Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that this is only or slash mostly for anglophiles? Is it so uniquely British with its estates and lawn tennis and the clash of the Edwardian and the Victorian, that it might prove a hurdle if you have an aversion to that sort of thing? Or is it more universal than that? You know what I'm going to say? Yeah. I think it's a little bit in between. I think people especially predisposed to Anglophilia will get a little bit more out of it because it is rooted in a specific time period that we in the U.S. didn't go through in quite the same way. But actually, Julian Sands tells a really wonderful story about taking this to a college roughly around the 25th anniversary. And he said he was incredibly surprised by how much people still loved it, young people included. 
So still effective a hundred years on from the time that the story was originally told. Absolutely. And I've got a little bit more about that later, but truly, I think that people are generally drawn to, like I mentioned, that positive side of romanticism. Now, I don't know if this was also universal, but because of George Emerson, I did think that men should be pale and probably broody. Well, I have half of those characteristics. I guess I should invest in some SPF 200. No, thank you. I'm glad <laughs> I got over it. Now, just the skinny dipping part is mandatory. And speaking of, there were a lot of firsts here for me. Remember, I was 10 years old when I saw this. So, wieners, <laughs> which of course we'll mention, that was a very big deal for me. This was also my first Merchant Ivory film. I knew them because I was a Siskel and Ebert person, even from that age. And I thought that the company sounded like a centuries-old European holding company of some kind. I didn't know that was just the names of the people involved. Well, to address some of these things that you're talking about, with the nudity, I can definitely see where this would be a watershed moment for a young viewer. By the time I got to this, I had already seen things like Equus or Midnight Express, so it wasn't quite as shocking as it might have been. It says something, though, that the ratio of female to male full frontal nudity in mainstream films is still so lopsided to this day. We could probably do an hour-long exploration of just that idea. I think we talked about that just a little bit in our Birds and the Bees episode, but if you think about this time period, you personally, Cole, and even me, would have been way more predisposed to see a woman nude on screen. The male nudity was a brand new thing, especially in this setting. And as far as Merchant Ivory goes, I was 15 at the time, and this was my first experience with Merchant Ivory too. I would guess that was probably the same story for a lot of average film goers, because this really was a bit of an artistic and commercial breakthrough for them. It put them on people's radar in a lot of cases for the first time. And it was big for me too, during that VHS era. I rented and watched this multiple times. I think there is no better initiation to the world of Merchant Ivory than this film. I'm so glad my mom just bought it for us because we knew we were gonna wear out that tape. Even down to something like the titles and the font in the credits was new to me. I wasn't used to seeing credits, these grotesques, that are very theatrical. They put us in the action and describe the characters, kind of that dramatis personae. So you were about 10, right? Do you remember if you had seen many silent films up to that point? Because I felt like I was acclimated to that style and technique from having seen silence. It just put me in the mind of title cards. I probably had seen a couple of random things, probably more like short subjects, some serials even. But this was in color. This was like theater to me. I say that though, that was probably because I was used to seeing people go to the theater in movies. I hadn't really gone to a big production yet. And even down to something like not knowing who Giotto or Chimabue were until much later. And when I sought them out later, I felt really special in a fun way. Now, this was obviously before you had traveled extensively, I would assume. Can you really get it, do you think, if you haven't done that yet, if you haven't had that experience of opening the window onto the piazza? Because it inspires those desires without a doubt. Every time I put it on, I wish I was there. I know what you mean, but at that point, I actually already had some of the wanderlust in me because remember, I was born in Hawaii. We moved from Hawaii to Virginia. 
We had already gone back to Hawaii to visit. I had traveled cross country at that point as well. So we were on the road a lot. It was before my big move. And then of course, before all of my international travel to come. So I think like you're saying, the beauty of it is if you haven't gotten a chance to open those windows of your room and look out onto a new landscape, it makes you want to do it. Okay, are you ready to get into this gym? Yes, let's do it. So let's meet all the characters that, by coincidence, have come together in the Pensione in Florence that caters to Brits on vacation. We've got Lucy and Charlotte, George and his father, Miss Lavish, and the Miss Allens. We see the vision. That is Helena Bonham Carter, that perfect facial shape, the hair. She is imprinted on my brain. And I do want her to have a view. I want Lucy Herney Church to have a view. I love these two maiden sisters, the Miss Allens. They're presented so delicately, but openly. Charlotte, who is Lucy's chaperone, she's practically constipated from the efforts <laughs> of keeping Lucy from the dangers of the earthy Florence and Italians. And of course, Miss Lavish, played by Judy Dench, our lady novelist, she is on point when she observes Florence, the melange of the vulgar and the proper and the lavish. And it's when Mr. Emerson insists that Lucy should in fact have her view, they swap rooms, and that's where our story begins. And it struck me when we first see Lucy get out of bed in her new room, we're seeing a production because we don't see her every move. It's not realism, per se, including and especially the lighting. It's romanticism, capital R, right? I think so. Another aspect of that, the music. I want to talk for a second about the score. We open up with that Puccini aria sung so beautifully by Kiriti Kanawa. And there are those piano pieces played throughout by Lucy that are so effective. Even Simon Callow's voice I would classify as music. So to me, every piece of music or the spoken voice is employed so seductively here. When we start from the top, does the music give you a sense of what the film will feel like? Absolutely, yes. It's rapturous is how I would describe oh, it. Oh, what a great word. From the first note of that Puccini aria. There are probably only a handful of pieces of music that so define how I feel about the beginning of any movie or so perfectly set the mood. And we often hear people mention films that they will sit down and watch any time that they come on. The Godfather, The Shawshank Redemption. Pressing play on this and hearing this music, that is what makes me realize that I could watch this anytime, over and over, even though you don't often think of it in the same category as those other films. Did that surprise you a little bit to discover that you felt that way about it? Mm, not surprise me necessarily because... Having been the person I am for so long, I am well aware of my connection to music and how it moved me even before movies did. So as our characters venture out into Florence, we meet some opposing religious viewpoints. That's the Victorian Mr. Eager, who is based in Florence, and the more Edwardian Mr. Beebe, the vicar from Lucy's corner of the world. Now, to put this in context, this is roughly supposed to be about 1908 from the novel, and it's clearly pre-World War I, which is important for the period in time for these characters. And when I think about E.M. Forrester and this major transition into Edwardianism from Victorianism with Romanticism, the vulgar and the proper, I also actually think about Evelyn Waugh, 
which is probably very literally from the sacred and the profane. Do you think of those two together? Did you come to Forrester or Waugh first? I definitely think of them together whenever I picture that time period in my head. I came to Waugh first because we were a big PBS family, so Brideshead Revisited was a big event for us in the early 80s. Oh, that makes so much sense. That was a little too early for me. So for me, it was actually Forrester, and especially through Morris and then Evil and Wa and the World War I stuff. So as we're getting to know more about Mr. Emerson here and George by way of his father, do you think E.M. Forrester uses the Emerson name on purpose? Specifically, I'm thinking about Ralph Waldo Emerson. Again, I have to say absolutely. It is without a doubt a nod to the transcendent and being a free thinker, or at least I hope it is. It doesn't seem like it can be a coincidence when you look at it. You look at Mr. Emerson's declaration about there being a yes and a yes and a yes. And then you put that beside this Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, live in the sunshine, swim the sea, drink the wild air. Mm, Can we go do that? Yeah, I love both of those sentiments and they seem to go together hand in glove. And you mentioned how formative this experience was for you overall. This speech alone that Emerson gives was like that for me. The whole thing really resonated with me, particularly pointing out that he was raising his son free of the prejudices that make people hate each other in the name of God. That meant a lot to me to hear that in a venue where I didn't necessarily expect it. And none of that could have occurred to the 10-year-old me, even leading up all these years when this film has been so important to me until I met you. But it makes a ton of sense. Now I understand it. I think so, too. When we talk about the oversoul and fate, specifically fate comes up as a discussion point between Mr. Beebe and George. So I like to think that it's on purpose, too. And speaking again of Mr. Emerson, who is better than Denim Elliot. For this role, no one. I can't imagine anyone so perfectly making this improper offer to switch rooms and becoming so passionate about these foolish social restrictions, these niceties that go against common sense and pounding his chest. Here's where the sky is blue. With the fork. I love that so much. There is such a blissful ignorance in this delivery, or maybe a better word is purity in these social missteps. Or maybe, even better, he is fully aware of the rules, quote-unquote, and just disregards those that are ridiculous and inhibit joy. Absolutely. He's at the time in his life where he can realize, this is so stupid, I don't need to do this, and I'm assuming has brought George up the same way from infancy. And it's not just the time in his life, it's the time in history, too, and I think Denham Elliott nails this part of it as well. He has this great quality of being flustered by the changing times and generations without knowing that he's exactly the kind of person we need in that moment. Understanding that tact and delicacy, they aren't the be-all, end-all. He's been waiting his whole life, this character, to see the Edwardian blessedly snuff out the Victorian without even knowing it. The times are finally catching up to him. Good point. I like to think of him as almost the human topsy-turvy. He is the person who points out your muddle and won't let you stay in it, even as his shirt is buttoned the wrong way or half untucked (laughs) or whatever. And plus, Mr. Emerson has the best lines. Built by faith just means the workers weren't paid properly, which I totally agree with. And just casually mentioning that Lucy should fall in love with George. Okay. 
So we are about to find ourselves at another turning point. And this is the event that takes place in the piazza. Lucy has ventured out on her own, even taken off her coat, which to me is kind of a big deal. And violence erupts suddenly all around her. And it's George who gets her away as she begins to faint from the sight of blood. They're not looking at each other, but something has changed. So do you think here, the violent and the profane, in terms of this stabbing death and the gore, do you think this opens people up in the film? Would Lucy have let her guard down otherwise? Oh, what would these staid, stiff, upper-lip Brits do without these passionate Italians for contrast? This may be the one little part of the film that I struggle with a little bit, the way it relegates the Italians to be stereotypical representatives of more primitive emotions and less intellectually driven. Which is ironic that they're doing this because they are standing in the midst of some of the greatest artistic and architectural achievements in the history of the world. I think you see this most on display in the condescension of the novelist, Miss Lavish. The story is obviously poking fun at her and these attitudes and her penchant for exaggeration. And I think she and Charlotte actually make great counterparts because they are two sides of the same insufferable coin of Brits abroad. It takes some nerve for a Brit in 1908 to complain about how a piece of meat is being prepared anywhere. Was it not boiled with potatoes enough? <laughs> True. Maggie Smith, she is so perfect here, though, I have to say, with her gossip and her minor key martyrdom that's always going on. But then the corners of her mouth, the way they turn slightly up on occasion, and you realize everyone has their adventures, even the most unlikely and buttoned up people. And as far as Lucy dropping her guard, yes, she was just waiting for a reason. She was primed for it. If it wasn't this, it would have been something else. Exhibit A, anytime she sits down at a piano. She is fiercely musical, and I love her selections and her playing style. You're not doing it right if Beethoven doesn't leave you feeling peevish. I love that you bring up this point about treating the Italians as the exotic other, which I do think is definitely in step with the period. This exoticism, we would often see it expressed in art, for example, as Orientalism. It's not something that I also thought about at the time, but is interesting to go back to now. Even if it's condescension, they know how to live right. We see that as everyone heads out into the countryside on this picnic. The driver and his quote-unquote sister are having a wonderful time. Don't you want to be there too? So let's talk about this magical trip. The gorgeous Italians, the fussy Brits, all the glorious hair, Miss Lavish and Charlotte peering off to gossip, the men in the other direction eating, George and his creed, and the kiss. Now, I've talked before about the time of day to watch something. And to me, this is an afternoon to dusk experience. You should be left with the night to be romantic. For me, it's even more expansive than time of day. This is a feeling that I've carried with me about this film forever. It's so interesting that you have this particular way that you associate films like that. Before we even met, I have a similar seasonal thing. To me, this conjures up a feeling that I wonder if everyone can relate to. This instills that feeling of early summer twilight in the countryside. It's a little warm, but not too warm. And you can start to hear the evening insects buzzing. 
it's such a very specific feeling that I wonder, do city dwellers have an analog to this? Because what I am talking about seems very specifically rooted to being in the countryside. I hate to think that city dwellers don't have the same sort of experience. There's got to be something with the way sunset hits a building or people coming outside to enjoy the warmth. But you know me, though. I am obsessed with that time of year when we see our first lightning bugs. Mm -hmm. So I know what you mean. But I was watching this sitting on probably kind of a velour couch in a <laughs> suburban neighborhood. So it wasn't quite that magical, but it definitely affected me. So we talked earlier before about the eternal yes speech and what that means to you. And then we hear George's creed. What do these two things, how do they speak to you specifically? Because I'll say they don't necessarily recall that same eternal feeling to me. Oh, they definitely do to me. Declaring the eternal yes is something that this film made me aspire to. Imagine how much better off we would all be if we spent our time in pursuit of beauty and joy and love. Nothing much would get done, probably, but I don't think it would matter all that much if these were our regular pursuits. In all honesty, though, I think I'm probably more like the senior Emerson when it comes down to it. He has all those same feelings, and likely he has pursued them in his life. That's how he can so accurately diagnose his son. But he recognizes, too, that there's an intellectual component to all of that. And George will grow into that, I think. I love that Mr. Emerson acts as that illustration that you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. Now, that begs the question for me, did you go through the George Emerson phase or did you skip right to Mr. Emerson? Oh, no, I definitely went through the George Emerson phase for sure. Maybe still in it a little bit. So taking a page out of my book, maybe you're a little bit of both of them. Classic Eric Law. <laughs> now, before we leave... Italy. I want to talk about just something that occurred to me. I didn't know that something so beautifully costumed could be so funny, which is what this is. But for now, love takes a detour. We're back in England and Lucy has consented to get engaged to Mr. Cecil Vise, he of no occupation and independent means. Their engagement is announced at a garden party, which to me is extra notable because we get to see all of this beautiful garden party costumery. And amidst talk of gentlewomen, Lucy and Cecil sneak off for a walk and an aborted kiss because he is a snoot. He doesn't approve of anyone or anything. So now that we've got our three sides of this triangle, what different forks in the road do you think these characters are at? I'm talking about Lucy, George, and Cecil or anyone else you can think of. Well, this is where I very clearly relate to George. Like you were saying, did I go through that phase? Yes, because with the persistence of his question marks, I feel like George feels like he's always at a crossroads. And I definitely felt that in my late teens through my 20s. Even though he's got it together more than most, it nicely underlines how dramatic and desperate everything feels at that age. I thought you might also relate to him because he's on the railways. Oh, God, I wish I was on the railways <laughs> at 20. That would have been so much fun. I'll go on the railways now. Lucy is obviously at multiple crossroads, too. That's what the entire story is about, basically. And Cecil's situation, I think I would describe it more as a reckoning than a fork in the road. That's what I was wondering, too. Does it come down to 
This is the time that he is supposed to get married or else, basically. Ellipsis. And I wonder, does Lucy understand truly, can she understand, what kind of life she would be letting herself into with Cecil? And maybe George has to start making some decisions about how to care for himself and most importantly, his father. None of us at that age can know what's in store for us. I don't know what's in store for me now. It's that thing where you look back a year ago, or maybe just a little more than a year ago, would you have expected to have gone through a plague by this point? Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe not this kind, but you know, something's always going to happen probably. So am I being too practical if I ask how many conversations do you think Lucy and Cecil have had? How about George and Lucy? Is there a difference? I think it's a practical question, especially in light of what you were just saying about the rest of my life hinges on this decision. I think very few in each case, but it's the quality of each that makes the difference. Cecil has never once listened to what Lucy is actually saying, and George is dying to hear anything that Lucy has to say. So two poles completely opposite. Oh, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think, at least in part, we're to assume that Lucy and George are seen by each other in the way that we kind of think of it now. Everything you need to know about is on display when Lucy tells George that he has to go away and he says that he can't do that. George understands everything about the situation and he lays it out plainly, including how deeply he feels for her. George understands Cecil. George understands that this is his last chance to declare himself. I get the impression that no one has ever spoken so directly to her like this. And more importantly, gives the indication that she can speak so directly back to him, that he would be a true partner and they would enter into this union as equals. All of that is built into the way that he addresses her. And she, fortunately, she's already inclined, at least relative to those around her, to return that. If I was to fall in love with Lucy for a reason other than her piano playing, it would be for that no-nonsense part of her nature. So back to Cecil for just a second here. Do you agree with George that Cecil can't really love a woman? And then my question from that question is, do you think that Ian Forrester has queer-coded Cecil? Well, at one point, Lucy's mother asks, is anything the matter with Cecil? Yes, he's an insufferable twat, basically. <laughs> but that has right. nothing to do with his sexuality. Yes. Maybe that's in there a little from Forster, but is it that Forster has done that or that James Ivory has done that? We can also talk about Cecil as an asexual character. That's a totally viable option. And I wonder if sometimes because of our own inclinations, we're too quick to thrust a sexual end game onto a character. Maybe sex simply doesn't enter into their equation. Cecil is one of those characters that has a kind of flexibility with regard to how you can interpret him in that way. You look at Cecil inviting the Emersons to their village unknowingly. The cosmos will have its way, basically. We think of George saying his part of this is fate. It's the same for Cecil. Fate has come along and, maybe fortunately, depending on what he truly wants for himself, has relieved him of a set of obligations that he simply doesn't want to have to think about. I think that's a great point again, and I would say that's my influence coming through on that question. And that comes from two things. One of those is understanding the progression of Forrester's work, 
that it did evolve into more clearly talking about homosexuality or other forms of sexuality. And the second and most, I think, important, at least to me, the thing that sticks in my mind is the adaptation from TV in 2007. I've mentioned this previously on the show. By the way, Timothy and Rafe Spall played Mr. and George Emerson, which was a great touch. And in that, Cecil is very definitely queer-coded. It's actually Mr. Beeb who has this conversation with Lucy. He's saying, basically, that Cecil will not make a good husband, and it's implied because I should know. It's much more adamant. The word is not used, but we understand the meaning. Interesting. I've never seen that adaptation, so I should get on that pretty soon. Yes, I've got it. And it's very fun. Also, there's a different framing device that happens, which in an interesting way aligns with the epilogue that Forrester put on this later on. And the Italians have a different part to play, too. So I think a little bit of this comes down to the writers who have taken on this material. Because Mr. B tries to get across that the consequences would be dire. It is important that she understands if this marriage were to go through, nothing good will come of this. Which makes me think it would become basically Hugh Grant's character in Morris, his marriage. So when George talks about this profound change that has happened, what do you think it is? Is it love at first sight, do you think? There is definitely that. I think that is a huge part of it. But within that, I think it's also something more specific. To me, it's right after the fainting spell when he retrieves her photos and then throws them away because they're covered in blood. It's that pivotal moment of sharing secrets. That is significant. It's what lovers or other intimates like partners in crime do. And they have not achieved that status yet. This is their first step on that road. I had never thought about that. And that's actually why I asked the question, because I didn't quite know what the answer was. And I do really like this idea of them arriving at their individual understandings of this at different times. Rarely in real life do both parties fall in love at the same speed or at the same time. And this exhibits itself in all sorts of great ways. My favorite, for example, is that slight but observable pause that she takes before she decides to walk down through that field to George where he is waiting. That pause makes the whole scene for me. It's like Peter Falk in A Woman Under the Influence pausing on that landing between rooms to gather himself for what he knows he has to do. But George has no hesitation. He goes for that kiss, and she is surprised, but not displeased, I would say. And he totally stole my move. <laughs> I was going to say, we might need to pause this for a second, because I need to give you a kiss, because we fell in love at the same time. This is such a great scene that I will forgive the slightly on-the-nose metaphor of their passions unleashing a literal tempest soon after. And then by the time we get to that second, more muddled, yet more reciprocated kiss, this is a done deal. Well, speaking of a done deal, this is what I have been waiting for. <laughs> and speaking of a scene that can have multiple implications, hey Cole, come and have a bathe. Yeah, I'm totally into this. Good, clean, fun, nude hijinks. I'm in for this anytime. By the way, I've got a great anecdote from Simon Callow here about this scene. They were promised there would be no shooting below the waist. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, he said it was freezing. And to talk about this multiple implications, it was actually Simon Callow who said he thought it was intentional to question 
whether maybe there was some homoerotic undertones in the scene and that all the characters would probably be fine with it and fine if there isn't any. I think what I like the most when George puts on that collar, I always laugh at that fun little bit of sacrilege when he puts on the vicar's collar and then jumps in the water. I think my favorite moment is the pause before they all start splashing each other. It's just too funny that they all have the same thought. I get what you're saying, though, about how this is viewed. This scene is often viewed through that homoerotic lens. And going back to what I was saying about the dearth of male nude bodies on screen, I can certainly see where if that's what you were into and what you were looking for, that you could see that in this. And like you're saying, what a great scene for that. It's playful and fun, and there's no shame attached to any of this. Coming from my hetero perspective, though, it always struck me as transcending sexuality is how I looked at it. It's more along the lines of the human body being the oldest artistic subject is how it felt to me. The older I get, the more I do come back to, I'm okay with exploring it specifically from a sexual standpoint. Just like you said, if you recognize yourself on screen and it's in such a positive way and Mm. it's maybe the first time you've seen something like that, great. Yeah, I definitely don't condemn the idea. It's just that I never saw it that way upon my initial viewings. Maybe like you, the more I talk and think about it, I definitely see more of that. Or at least I see people's perfectly legitimate desire to find that in it. Yeah, it's great. So will Lucy and George stay apart or come together? Will she see life with Cecil for what it is? Poor Charlotte is coming to stay. And so things are coming to a head again. I like how essentially everyone assembled sighs and rolls their eyes whenever they hear that Charlotte's coming to visit. (laughs) Poor Charlotte. Well, at last, Lucy gets some sense and she breaks off the engagement with Cecil. And she's convinced herself that the Miss Allens who are coming back into her life, they're going to Greece, so she should go with them. And as we're looking at these different characters and the different costumes that we see here, for example, Lucy in red to go to the church, Charlotte in her new frock, I want to talk for a second about the costumes and the designers. So by the way, Jenny Beaven and John Bright won Best Costume Design at the Oscars for this. And I think about something that the cast have said. They said of these designers, they created wardrobes. They knew how clothes were to be worn, not just look. And you can see that in the tennis scene, especially. I think the costuming touch that stood out most to me took place at the Basilica. There's a brilliant overhead shot that emphasizes how all of the young women there, except Lucy, were dressed incredibly uniformly. She does not belong among these masses. And we've got to talk about the art direction here, which also won an Oscar. Everything is so perfect and sumptuous or spare, or you have no view. It's just all wonderful. So Lucy is at a brand new fork, post-Cecil, possibly going to Greece. And I see this when her mother talks about that she might even get a job. It seems like the real world is at the door. It's insane. So I want to mention something here that I think Forster excels at, which is pointing out that Some people have freedom. We see the freedom expressed by the spinsters only because they have money. Yeah, the Miss Allens get around. I love this lifestyle. I envy how they are so free to go wherever, whenever. There is a fair amount of privilege built into this, to be sure. 
it was not an inexpensive enterprise, for example, to be able to go on this grand tour type experience. But then there are also those little indulgences that don't cost anything that equally get my attention. In this case, I am thinking of that simple gesture of putting flowers in her hair. It makes me realize how seldom we take the time to do such things, many of which are available to us anywhere, anytime, for no cost. It is so simple and lovely and joyful. It's this class examination that I'm so interested in, again, as I get older, because I go back to Morris again. This freedom and this money is what makes Morris's life opportunity at the end to go with his love a triumph. But then you see the reality of his sister and mother who are dependent upon him and have no opportunity like that. So Forrester can show us both of these sides of the world. And I think like you're saying, it's when Lucy chooses to seek the life without money, which is George, that then means she can be happy and free. So we're wrapping everything up. She finally comes to her senses again. She makes this declaration. What did you all think that, yes, she's in love with George, but to his father, not to him? What do you make of that? I see a couple of things. I think it's possibly rooted in a deference to a paternal authority figure, which she does not have in her home. So there may be a yearning there for that. And I think she also intuitively knows that he is being wholly honest with her at every juncture and would never do anything to hurt her or betray her confidence. So she feels safe telling him this. It's not the same risk as telling George. And I love how in her muddle, she is giving herself away basically by denying things that she has not even been accused of. Everyone's been lying except George. She's speaking with a new voice and it's a voice that Mr. Emerson should recognize because it's George's language. What this focuses me on is how I really appreciate all of the parental relationships in this film. Lucy and her mother, Cecil and his mother. But I love George's relationship with his father the most. The best of these relationships makes room for and encourages and has true affection for those characteristics that define that person. And the Emersons are the most together, the most unified of all of these sets. I would throw in as well, Mr. Beebe and Minnie, because Simon Callow makes a great point that he approached the character from that purity standpoint. He's a purely kind and loving person. And even down to his niece, when he puts his hands on her shoulders to take her away for the tea party, it's a lovely moment. I also am going to throw in there, I think it's just a delightful bit of upending expectations just from a dramatic storytelling standpoint. Because again, I want to feel like I'm watching something, I'm reading something. So at the end, Lucy and George are back at the Pensione for their honeymoon and we have copies of all of the characters again. We've used a lot of adjectives to describe this thing, but I don't think anything conveys how I feel at the end of this more than this is just so satisfying. Yes, it is. Thank you for going on this journey with me again. I'm so glad that I decided to do this this year. I think it was the exact right time. Okay, so we've still got some more things to get through in our wrap up here, but I have a bit of trivia for you first. Okay. Did you know who the backers of the film wanted to play George and Lucy? Rupert Everett and Susan George. I don't know the second one. <laughs> no, incorrect. On both counts? On both counts. 
John Travolta <laughs> and Glenn Close. Oh my God, are you kidding me? I am not kidding you. This is from the creator's mouths. These were the people who wanted to put the money in and were going to pull it out if they didn't get these two name actors. Also, I've got a second bit of fun trivia for you. Apparently, John Malkovich was on the set knitting at one point because he and Julian Sands were great friends. Funny. I can see him now in that same tradition as Ernest Thesiger on all those James Whale sets sitting around doing the same thing. He referred to himself as the stitching bitch. <laughs> that seems appropriate. Well, I like to think of this in general as Julian Sands characterized the production, a magic picnic. Everyone said it was just a great experience. So when we look back on the film as a whole, do you have a favorite character, a favorite scene, a favorite image, any of those things? Well, before I address that, I really do like this idea that Julian Sands is talking about there. We talked about this during our Princess Bride episode. I know it's not necessary, but it really does come through sometimes. When you see a company working together that is obviously having such a good time making this film. But as far as my favorites in this, every single scene that Mr. Beeb is in, basically, Simon Callow is such a charismatic guy. And I love that this vicar is all about common sense. He has flickers of earthiness. He is so amused and pleased at people indulging themselves. He likes to sow a little discord even, I think. He knows that Lucy and Cecil's engagement is the bunk. He cannot hide that in his face. Nor can he hide his evident delight at the breaking of this engagement. It makes me want to know so much more. What was he before he was a clergyman? I want a Mr. Beeb origin story. Hmm, that sounds good. Okay, well, I've got about a hundred of them, so <laughs> wait for a second. I think my single favorite moment just in general is Cecil putting his shoes back on. Ah, I love that too. Oh my gosh, he is a human in that moment. I love Miss Allen. When she examines herself in the mirror with the cornflowers, I see the girl that I always think I am and probably will forever. And speaking of the thumping on the chest, when George has bounded back to the pensione in the rain after that momentous kiss, he thumps his chest to say, it's me. And then just another sort of note, Helena Bonham Carter said she didn't know what she was doing the whole time. She said she was in a muddle like Lucy was, so she just used it. And that turned out to be integral to the whole thing, I think. Mr. Emerson's assessment of her at the end, you've deceived everyone, including yourself, that doesn't come through as fully without being in a muddle, without inexperience and feeling out of your depth. So it was a smart move to just lean into that. When Lucy is making plans for her independence, I see Helena Bonham Carter doing the exact same thing. She must have been at that point in her life. So it all makes it feel honest. It's in that sweet spot that only happens in our youth when we have doubt or fear because of inexperience equally balanced by feeling like we know everything in the world and the defiance and fearlessness that comes with not being able to recognize that we don't. All of that is on her face, which makes me think of a question for you. Is this better experienced when we are young, when the viewer is young and just beginning to brim over with these passions? So much of this is about first stirrings. It would be such a different, more nostalgic experience, I think, if you first came to this when you were 50, for example. I see what you're saying, but again, I don't want any random 50-year-old to lose out on this experience of seeing it for the first time. And I guess I go back to that thing we were talking about earlier, about why the movie stays fresh. It's got a light touch. 
it's funny. It's beautiful. There's true romance here. And I think people will always respond to that. Whether it's a 50-year-old Charlotte looking back on a moment in Surrey and remembering a little bit of an adventure, or Miss Allen looking at herself in the mirror, there's life left in us all. I think you're dead on the money with the lightness part of that. I think that's why it continues to thrive and resonate. It's so well-written, and the lightness of it all makes it a pleasure to come back to, even while it's teaching us. Because it's full of lessons. You take a huge lesson, like sometimes a disappointment, initially receiving a room with no view, turns out to not be. Because if you demonstrate patience or have good luck, these instances can be catalysts for greatness in your life. And the view is pretty spectacular. Now, I want to come back to something that you said a moment ago. I think you perfectly encapsulated the feeling of satisfaction that comes at the end of the film. So that leads me to different feelings I have of what came after this. Speaking specifically of Howard's End and Remains of the Day, if you sort of think of them as a Merchant Ivory trilogy, even down to Helena Bonham Carter and Julian Sands's careers. I mentioned that trilogy sort of loosely. I think that you think of them that way, but to me, they're so different because I lose that satisfaction. Instead, we get the hopelessness of romanticism, the thwarted passions and the trauma, not the triumph of love. Not just a trilogy. I throw Morris in there too, I think. And I disagree somewhat about the letdown part because it's apples and oranges. I can totally see though where you would want more yes and yes and yes. What came after was exceedingly well made and performed and executed. We can't argue that. But I can see where it would be disappointing if instead of the eternal yes, it was more the eternal, I say, let's just be friends. Yeah, and we can never be happy, correct? That's, okay. Yeah, it's harder to get excited about. I totally understand. And talking about the cast, this to me represents career peaks for so many people. Sometimes you just have the perfect cast. And it made me wonder, were all these first choices? Obviously not, based on what you told me. <laughs> right. But I do know that at one point, Rupert Everett was in the mix, but I'm glad it didn't go that way. Not that I think he's a bad actor, but I can't think of it being any better than it is. Yeah, I think it's really rotten of me, especially for Helena Bonham Carter and Julian Sands to not be prepared for them to be other characters in their careers. I think the huge difference, though, is Daniel Day-Lewis. Who else commits in the way that he does? Because I saw this, and then I saw My Left Foot, and then, of course, everything else that he's done is equally or more startling. So he escaped that prison I was putting the other two actors in. Well, if you were going to pick one to do that, this was the right horse to bet on because Daniel Day-Lewis is the greatest actor of his generation, I think. It's hard to believe that this man is also indelibly Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood. And he was given his choice of Cecil or George in the production. And as usual, his instincts were impeccable. I think Cecil is definitely the more difficult needle to thread performance-wise. You mentioned he has no profession. He is a pompous ass with all of his talk of decadence. <laughs> right. He would not know decadence if it sat on his face. <laughs> uh, pun intended. Yeah. And that sad attempt at a kiss that you mentioned earlier, he definitely did not steal my move. He needs to take my course. That is true. And I think maybe that's also why I was so attached to the other two characters, because I either wanted to be them or fall in love with them. And Cecil just exists outside of that. 
So coming right after our previous episode on L'Argent, which was filmed just a couple of years before this, I talked so much in that episode about the feeling experience. What feeling experience does this film inspire in you? Well, my answer to that is not what you might think of in relation to the question I think you're asking. When you put those two examples together like this, it gives me a greater appreciation for the decade which spawned all of these. A lot of people, in fact, the majority of them, I would say, probably have a very specific image in mind when you say 80s films, quote unquote. The Goonies, The Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I don't want to think about those movies very much. And sometimes it makes it hard to have a conversation when that phrase is being kicked around the old water cooler. I spent the 80s trying to find the antidote to that. And since I was a kid, it was hard. I might not have even known how to fully articulate how unsatisfying some of those movies were for me at the time. How exactly do you turn to your other 12-year-old friends and say, there has to be more than this in a way that will get across to them and be meaningful somehow? So I just started to try to find my own way, which got easier as I got older and the decade went on. And I will say full credit to my circle of friends from that time in my life because they were all in for whatever W.C. Fields, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, Blood Simple, anything that I tried to show them, they were game for it. So I really love them and appreciate that. But at any rate now, when you say 80s films, I think of this and L'Argent and Diva, Barfly, Cutter's Way, Paris, Texas. So that the feeling that this inspires in me is an awareness and gratitude that there is something other than the prescribed way. Well, I think when you look back on my early film education, you can probably understand why the question even comes up. Why I would imagine seeing things like this that I should feel something, some great emotion with every viewing. Formalism would come much later. (laughs) (laughs) So then, have we chatted about everything covering the film that you wanted to talk about? I think we've covered it in pretty great detail. I will just say I love it as much now as I did then. My appreciation for it only grows through the years. So then, how about a recommendation? Well, this time around, I wanted to recommend A Sunday in the Country from 1984, generally around the same time period. And that's directed by Bertrand Tavernier and starring Louis de Creux, Michel Aumont, and Sabine Azema. And it's about a painter that's now in the twilight of his life that lives in the French countryside and one eventful Sunday afternoon in the late summer when the family gathers for a visit. Now, there are a lot of tangential connections here. There's that exquisite summertime buzz that I was talking about. It's also a period piece set just a couple years after this film. And there's also a free-thinking young woman that is the catalyst for the action here, though the story doesn't entirely center on her experience. It's also a more melancholy and bittersweet affair. Think somewhere right between Bergman's familial reckonings and A Room with a View. Why have I not seen this yet? I don't know, yet? but you're going to love it. I guarantee it is sumptuous to look at. There's also a lovely piece of music that's a bit of a signature too, like A Room with a View. Highly recommended if you love life and its circuitous path. How about you? Well, I went with the doomed romanticism <laughs> for this one, and I chose The Wings of the Dove from 1997, directed by Ian Softley with Helena Bonham Carter, Linus Roach, and Allison Elliott. It's adapted from the 1902 novel of the same name by Henry James, and it's about an impoverished woman who's been forced to choose between a privileged life with her wealthy aunt 
or her journalist lover, and they befriend an American heiress. They discover that the heiress is attracted to the lover and is also dying. So is there a chance here to not have to choose between which life she wants? So I really like to see Helena Bonham Carter on that other end of the kind of dollar princess period, which I'm really interested in. She's the exploiter and not the exploited. And then you have Allison Elliott's character, who is not a patsy either. It's great. It's doomed. It definitely spoke to 1997 me. So somewhere in between age 10 and 25, you lost all your youthful bloom and optimism and... It was grunge. That was taking over. <laughs> so once again, that's two great recommendations, A Sunday in the Country and The Wings of the Dove. And that brings us to the end of episode 154. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. There are now over a hundred mini-episodes over there for you to check out, so there's lots of fun material there talking about things we don't often talk about on the regular show. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time, especially the fine gentlemen of Fuds on Film, Spencer Seams at the Shoot the Piano Player podcast, and Andy Wolverton. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Audible, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>